Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning. How y'all doing today? Good. It is good to see you. Uh, my name is Nick Johnkowski, and I am the associate pastor here at Mosaic Church. And if this is your first time joining us here at Mosaic, or maybe if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're actually going to be concluding our series that we're currently in called Greater Love. And over the past seven weeks, our lead pastor, Jason Montana, who is away shooting Bambi this week. Yeah, uh, we love him and bless him on that. Uh, has been doing an incredible job leading us in exploring God's radical love. And today we're going to spend some time looking at the one thing Jesus said is the most important thing when it comes to love. Um, how many of you know that if Jesus said it was important, we should probably pay attention to it, right? So that's what we're going to do. But before we jump in this morning, uh, we're going to take some time to pray. So if you would, please bow your head and let's get our hearts right before the Lord to receive his word. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. Spirit, would you come and be in this place? Open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you would want to speak to our lives. Help us to walk out of here different than when we came in. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to uh, begin this morning by making a statement that I believe some of you in this room will find blasphemous. And I figure if you're going to speak blasphemy from the pulpit, what better time to do it than when the lead pastor is away, right? So here it is. Ikea is the devil. I said it. I said it. Ikea is the devil. Now, I realize that there are probably some of you in here who think Ikea is a wonderful place filled with reasonably priced, innocuous-looking flat packages that can be built into amazing furniture with ease. If you are that kind of person, it's probably not a stretch to say that you're also the kind of person who enjoys things like pineapple on your pizza. Perhaps you enjoy the sound of nails on a chalkboard or lemon juice in a fresh cut. The truth is, IKEA is a dizzying and completely overwhelming experience. From the moment you walk in through those blue and yellow doors, you are literally a rat trapped in a never-ending maze of knickknacks and doodads for your home. The endless rows of packages can quickly cause vertigo. And as you've been wandering aimlessly through the store for one to two, three, four hours, at some point you eventually ask yourself, can I seriously just lay down on one of these pre-made beds and take a nap? And when you finally, finally make it to the checkout aisle, you assure yourself that the poster that you purchased of the bird lady, which we can see here, that's an actual Ikea poster, and the 40 mason jars that you had in tow behind you were necessary because it was such a great deal. The sheer volume of items housed within its walls is enough to cause even the most seasoned shopper to begin to wonder, where do I even start? Or perhaps... I'm just going to give up. And that same overwhelming feeling that I get when I walk into an Ikea, 
doesn't differ greatly from what I experience when I turn on the news or when I scroll through my social media feed. Because the truth is, the same things that can overwhelm me that are good things, bad things can also overwhelm me as well. For every day, it's seemingly I'm faced with an endless parade of stories of tragedy and heartbreak. Just this week, I was thinking about the stories that I had to process through. Three men shot while leaving a concert in Salt Lake City. Two more suspects arrested in connection to the California shooting that left five dead on Halloween. A Yale woman's soccer coach no longer employed after allegations of misconduct in her previous employment. Former San Diego Sheriff's Deputy and four others charged with illegal gun trafficking. And on and on it goes. The countless stories of brokenness are dizzying and can certainly make me feel overwhelming. And if I'm honest with you guys, in those moments, I feel and wonder, what can I possibly do to make a difference in a world filled with so much hurt? I ask myself questions like, where do I start? Who do I try and help first? What agency do I give my money to? And perhaps the most perplexing question of all, what in the world is God asking me to do? in the midst of all this. If you're like me, I imagine that there have been times in your life that you've probably wondered the same thing, that what can I do to make a difference in the world? I think most of us, if we've been here the last couple of weeks, would probably agree that love is the answer. But love, as we've been discovering over these last few weeks in the Greater Love series, is often a very complex and very multifaceted subject. And further complicating the topic of love is the way in which we water down the meaning in our modern culture. Just stop for a moment and think about the ways in which we use the word love. I may say, I love my wife, which I do. There may be, we may say, I love the Packers. Now, I don't say that, but some of you sinners in here may say that. I love French fries. I love Fridays. I love my truck. We use the word so much that it has lost the gravity of its meaning. And thus we often struggle to apply what it means to truly love people who are lost and hurting. What does it mean to love a friend whose marriage is falling apart? What does it mean to love a neighbor who's lost their job? What does it mean to love a classmate who's contemplating suicide? What does it mean to love a family member who's received a cancer diagnosis? Our nebulous understanding of this word love, combined with just the multi-stories that are always coming at us and just heartbreak and tragedy, can leave us feeling frustrated and completely overwhelmed. And like that IKEA shopper, who's lost in a sea of kitchen utensils, unsure of where to go next, we can decide that the best thing to do is to do nothing at all. In that situation, we just simply resign ourselves to the belief that we can't make a difference. And perhaps even worse, we maybe make the decision that we're just going to numb ourselves to what's happening in the world around us. And both of those responses are understandable. But both of those responses are also 
wrong ways of thinking about life, especially for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Let me just say to you this morning, if you're in that position where you say, I feel that way, I look at the world and I don't know what to do, and so I've either gotten to a place where I don't feel like I can make any difference at all, or I just numb myself to what's happening in the news and in people's lives, I want you to listen to me right now. God has called you to make a difference in this world through love. Jesus said, you, you are the light of the world. And he said that they will know you by your love. The good news is, guys, we're not the first people to rest with, how, with the practical application of loving lost and hurting people. The people in Jesus' day had that exact problem as well. And so if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles. If you've got a physical Bible with you, if you've got the Bible app, whatever you use, uh, feel free to turn there. We're actually going to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And together we're going to explore this surprisingly simple and yet stunningly profound answer that Jesus shared with his audience. Let me grab my Bible so I can turn there as well. And we're starting in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 22. And it says this, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these commandments. Jesus' statement to his audience that day was as simple as it was profound. It's only actually three verses in length and can be summed up in just six simple words. Love God, love people as yourself. Love God, love people as yourself. But despite the brevity of his statement, it provides clear direction for any of us who are feeling overwhelmed when we're confronted by the evil in our world. If you do nothing else, Jesus says, choose to love God and love your neighbor. In fact, he says that if we just do those two things, we are doing the single greatest things that we can do as followers of Christ. It's interesting that I, as I was looking at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22, I found it fascinating what Jesus didn't say. Because I think sometimes as a church, we get things backwards. Jesus didn't say the most important thing you can do is go to church on Sundays to drink fabulous coffee and eat donut holes. Jesus didn't say the most important thing you can do is read your Bible. Jesus didn't say the most important thing you can do is pray. Jesus didn't say the most important thing you can do is put your offering in the tithe basket as it goes by on Sunday morning. While each of those things have their value and are very important, he says that the most important thing we can do as his followers is love. And that is the greatest commandment. Simple, right? Love God, love others. But what does loving God and loving others actually mean? How do we effectively love both to the glory of God and to the benefit of those people that we are sharing that love with. As any study with Scripture is true, context is king. 
to fully understand what Jesus means in this passage, when he tells us that we need to love God and love others, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Because when Jesus says to love God, he's actually referencing a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Who's excited that you get to spend time in the book of Deuteronomy this morning? Woo! Don't worry, it's going to get better. We're going to go to Leviticus in a little bit. It's a uh, verse from the um, Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And in that verse, we learn that Moses, the guy who spoke to Pharaoh, the plagues over Egypt, part of the Red Sea, has received the Ten Commandments. He's coming down off the mountain. And when he gets in front of the people of Israel, he says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Sound familiar? It would have sounded familiar to Jesus' audience as well. Those verses actually comprise what the Jewish people understood to be the Shema. And the Shema was and still is regarded as the most highly revered Scripture in the entire Bible for Jews. It's taught to every Jewish child and devout Jewish men and women recite it twice a day, once in the morning when they get up and once in the evening before they go to sleep. If you're like me, I check my phone in the morning when I get up and in the morning before I go to bed. Imagine what might happen in our lives if we started to employ the practice of just reciting that verse. And of course, the key of that passage is the word love. What does it mean when Jesus says, love God? Ancient Jews, I believe, would have understood this very differently than our modern context. For us today, we speak of love in terms of feelings, right? It's that warm, fuzzy feeling we get, the butterflies in our stomach. However, the Hebrew word for love was incredibly rich, but very difficult to narrow down. In fact, most scholars would say that the best way to describe love in the context of this Hebrew word is loyal affection. We encounter this word all throughout the Bible in a variety of different ways. Abraham shows Isaac this kind of love, and so it's a parental love. And for those of you who are parents in the audience, you understand that that kind of love is sacrificial. You give and you give to the benefit of your children. Jonathan showed this kind of love for David. So this kind of love is a friendship kind of love. And the king of Persia shows this kind of love for Esther. So it's also a romantic kind of love. And this is the kind of love that we are called to have for God, a loyal affection or devotion for our Creator. We are to love God because that's the way that God loves each of us. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop with just the idea that we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. He chose actually to add another commandment to the Shema. And this one is from the Old Testament book, as I said, of Leviticus, where it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he add on another commandment to what he's already shared? Is he like that kid in school that's always looking for extra credit even when it's not available? Right? We all know that kid. I'll tell you why. While loving God is primary, 
and the greatest commandment that we can fulfill, it's inseparable from loving others. While loving God is primary, it's inseparable from loving others. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You can't have one without the other. It's like Packers and championships. You can't have one without the other, right? And the Bible confirms this for us, right? In the first John chapter four, verse 20, it says this, that whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God who they have not seen. In other words, if, for instance, I say that I love God, and I'm all about going to church on Sundays, I'm all about praying, I'm all about reading my scriptures, but I do that at the expense of loving others, I don't really love God. What I love is myself and my spirituality. Because you can't have one without the other. And if that's convicting for you, I'm sorry. But I will tell you this, that it convicts me too. Again, in the passage in Leviticus, the context is the key to understanding what it means to love your neighbor. And in the verse in Leviticus, it actually deals specifically with living in community with others. The entire passage spells out, in practical terms, what it means to love your neighbor. It discusses things like taking care of the poor and foreigners, not cheating your co-workers or employees. It demands justice in legal settings. It creates community for marginalized people groups. And it decries partiality of any kind. It expands our understanding of our neighbor as just the person who lives next door to us, to anyone we encounter that has a need. In other words, it is loving without condition or pretense. It's not love your neighbor if. It's not love your neighbor when. It's not love your neighbor depending on their beliefs. For us today, this means that wherever we encounter someone who is in need, we love them, regardless of whether they are gay or straight, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are Republican or Democrat, whether they like us or not, whether they are our friend or our enemy, and yes, even if they like the Packers or not, which means you have to love me. We are simply called to love anyone we encounter unconditionally. There it is. Jesus simply profound call to love. The greatest commandment. And so when we are faced with a world that seems to be broken and hurting, we are told that the greatest thing we can do is choose to love God and love others. It's simple enough to sum up in six words, but it's powerful enough to change the world. Now, I know if you're like me, you may be wondering, okay, but what does that mean in my life today? A practical sense. How do I apply that? What does that look like in practical terms today? It sounds simple, but how do we actually do that? I'd like to, if you'll humor me, tell you a story about uh, two baseball teams 
who chose to love their neighbor over loving themselves. The story goes as follows. A fundraising dinner for a school that serves learning disabled children was happening one evening, and a father of one of those students delivered a speech that would never be forgotten for all who attended the banquet. After extolling the school and um, the dedicated staff, he offered a question. He said this, Everything God has done, he has done with perfection. And yet my son, Shay, cannot learn the things that other children do. He can't understand the, the things that other children do. Where is God, God's plan reflected in my son? The audience was stilled by his question. The father continued. I believe, he said, that when God brings a child like Shay into the world, it's an opportunity to realize the divine plan that God presented. And it comes to in the way that people treat that child. Then he told the following story. Jay and his father were walking past a park when he saw some boys that were playing baseball. And Shay turned to his dad and asked, Do you think they will let me play? Shay's father knew that the boys wouldn't want to let them on their wouldn't want to let him on their team. But the father also understood that if Shay was allowed the opportunity to play with them, it would give him some much needed sense of belonging. So Shay's father walked over to the group of boys and asked if Shay could play. One of the captains on the team looked around looking for guidance from his teammates, and receiving none, he decided to say, we're losing by six runs, and it's in the eighth inning. I guess we can let Shay on our team, and we'll try to put him at bat in the ninth. At the bottom of the eighth inning, Shay's team scored a few runs, but they were still behind by three. At the top of the ninth inning, Shay put on a glove and went out to the outfield, and although no balls came his way that afternoon, he was ecstatic just to be on the field, grinning ear to ear, as he waved to his dad from the stands. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shay's team scored again. Now, two outs and bases loaded. The potential winning run was on base. Shay was scheduled next up to bat. And his dad wondered, would the team actually let Shay get up to bat and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shay was handed a bat. Everyone knew that a hit was all but impossible because Shay didn't even barely know how to hold the bat, much less connect with the ball. However, as Shay stepped up to the plate, the pitcher decided that he was going to move a few steps closer to Shay and softly pitch the ball hoping that he would be able to make contact. The first pitch came, and Shea swung wildly and missed. The pitcher, again, took a few steps forward and tossed the ball softly at Shea. As the pitch came in, Shea swung at the ball and hit it and rolled a soft grounder back to the pitcher. He began to run towards first base, and as the pitcher picked up the ball, he could have easily tagged out Shea by a country mile. But instead, he decided to lock the ball in a high arc over the first baseman's head. Everyone started yelling at Shay, Run, Shay, run, run to first base. Never in his life had he ever made it to first base. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and open. 
And he turned in the direction of second base. And everyone began to yell, Shay, run to second. And by the time Shay was rounding first base, the right fielder had caught up with the ball. He could have thrown the ball to second and tagged Shay out. But the right fielder understood what the pitcher's intentions were. And so when he threw the ball, this time he threw it to third and it went way over the third baseman's head. And everyone began to cry and yell for Shay as he rounded the bases. As Shay reached that third base, all the boys from both teams began screaming, Shay, run home. Shay ran home and stepped on the plate and was cheered as a hero for hitting a grand slam and winning the game for his team. That day, his father said, tears now rolling down his face. The boys from both teams helped bring a piece of the divine plan into the world. I can think of no better summary of Jesus' words in Matthew 22. Both teams recognized Shay in that moment as they made it. And they made a choice to love Shay instead of loving winning the game or even themselves. And I bet if we all stop for a moment this morning and just pause in the flat, we could all probably remember a time in our lives when we were Shay and someone took the time to stop and love us. Remember well how that moment made you feel. Because now, stop and think for a moment, the kind of difference that you, that we as a church could make in our schools, in our communities, in our places of work, and in our homes, if we simply chose to love our neighbor as ourselves, we could ignite a movement that would transform our community and our world. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.